I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today for our series on women in the judiciary is Judge Wendy Hughes from the Gauteng Division of the High Court. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Judge Hughes, in 2001, mm. you established your own legal practice, Hughes Madondo Incorporated, initially as a sole practitioner, which you ran until you were appointed to Judge of the North Gauteng High Court mm. in 2013. To begin with, what prompted you to follow a career in law? Well, it was purely um, by accident, or I must say, I had um, completed uh, my matric um, and I had attended um, at the Wentworth Senior Secondary School. It's a school in the district of Wentworth, which is in KZN. And from our school, incidentally, we were only three eligible candidates to proceed to a university. And in that era, my dad, of course, in, the, in, in those days, your parents normally chose your career path. And my dad was of the view that, you know, it's either a doctor or a pharmacist or anybody in the medical field. And that would be the most promising of careers. So I, I went off to uh, then the University of Durban Westville and I registered for pharmacy. I think I, I, I was there for like a month attending lectures and I was like, no, this is just not for me. And the two gentlemen who also qualified, it was myself as the only female and the two gentlemen from our school that also qualified, they had registered for law. So one day I just said, you know, I'm going to bunk lectures and I'll just go and see what they are doing. Because mine's was now totally boring and I was, I was just not keen on continuing. And I attended um, a lect a lectures for the day with them. And I was like, this is actually where I'm supposed to be. And being a first year student, it's not too difficult to basically catch on to what the topics are. And it so happened that uh, in one of the lectures, I was also having debate with the lecturers. And um, the lecturer asked me, said, I didn't see your name on the list. And I said, no, my name is not actually on the list. I'm actually uh, registered for pharmacy. And he said, you know, maybe you should reconsider. And that is how I ended up doing law. It's a great recruitment. Uh, totally. Um, at the end of the year, there comes the results. And, of course, it's addressed to your, your parents in, oh, so in they those didn't days. Know. Yes. Change my curriculum. There's that period that I think it's just after February or thereabout where you're allowed to change your curriculum. And in that period, I changed my curriculum. And I was doing law. And come the end of the year, yeah, the results, of course, they, they sent off to the sponsor and the sponsor was my dad and here is Wendy registered for law and he's who is registered for BPROC they must have made a mistake 
And there it comes out that, yes, I was registered for BPROC. I changed over from pharmacy to BPROC. And this is how I got to do law. That's a wonderful story. <laughs> and so good that you found your calling at the right time. Yes, yes. I, well, um, I, I always said to myself that it was just God's will that I went to that lecture. Because that basically turned my, my whole focus and my life around um, into what I do today. And often I think that as young people, most people don't know what they want to be. Mm-hmm. And you, you look at these choices and you, you try and experiment, but we've got limited resources to experiment with, finance, time, um, that when you, you do find the, the bell that, that triggers it is a wonderful thing to happen. No, it is. Or sometimes it's just a bit too late, you know, if you if if you leave it too long. So I in that in that sense I, I was a bit fortunate. And moving on from your practice, you then became a judge in South Africa. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about the process and also the weight of the role? Because your judgments have got life changing consequences mm. and they also set future precedents. Well, speaking for myself, you know, um, each judge, I would presume, goes through a a different path in in attaining, ultimately, um, the position of a judge. With me being in, I was in private practice as an attorney. So I was basically headhunted by my peers to attend an aspirant judicial woman's training that was then... Um, that was then uh, fostered by the the Swiss, and it was um, held and or uh, careered in South Africa by the then Chief Justice Pius Langer. So there were two two sets of schools at that stage. The one stemmed from the first of January to June, and the second school was from July. To, uh, to the end of, of December um, that he basically careered in that period. It was in 2008. So I was part of the second group. What we did was we then got to, uh, it was, I think it's um, the law school right here in, uh, um, in, in Auckland Park or close to Auckland Park um, that we attended on a daily basis where we had judges come through and try and impart what we should look for when we go into those positions in terms of acting. We did that for six months and thereafter we went into our different divisions because it was a host of women um, in my team. It was about 16 of us. After we had the theory sort of portion, we then went into our respective divisions and we shadowed a judge. So the judges are Gauteng would come through and lecture now and then, but we had um, a constant mentor, and that was uh, Judge Schwachman, and he would career us on the path of judgment writing, how to handle the court in terms of court ethics, how to deal with issues while sitting on the bench, and thereafter we went into our respective divisions and we shadowed a judge. So we'd sit with a judge in a matter, not on the bench per se, but in the the gallery, we'd take notes. We'd then meet after we've presided over the matter. 
we discussed the matter. That judge would discuss the matter with you. What would be your view? How would you see this case? Was it correct that I objected? You know, that sort of um, interaction. And thereafter, he would say, okay, Wendy, you write the judgment. Let me see what comes out from your view of the matter. So I'd write my specimen judgment. He'd write his judgment. And then we'll confer as to whether I'm on the right path, whether I'm on the wrong path, what what did I do wrong, what, what could I improve on. And in some instances, you know, if, if you work hard, you actually come up with the solution that he didn't even think of, you know, in, in those instances. So that we call the mentorship phase of, of that um, program. After the mentorship phase, we then we came back for an exit interview. After the exit interview, your mentors would have reported on, on your progress. And of course, Schwachman would have uh, reported on your theory progress and how you fared. And then they would then say, okay, you're eligible to be appointed as an acting judge. Come your acting stints, you now allocated matters as a judge would be. So you do crime, you do civil, you do urgence in terms of civil, you'll do oppose, you'll do all matters that a judge would do, basically on your own. Because of course, um, a judge is independent and the judge needs to make his or her mind up on their own. And in my case, I acted in, because um, I'm originally from KZN, I acted in KZN in Marisburg High Court and also Durban High Court. I was then also invited to go through to Kimberley and that was by way of an invitation from one of the chairpersons of that program who basically interviewed me during the exit interview and he he felt that I'd I'd gained from his ex, his experience in his court and exposure um in respect of that court so I did a stint in Kimberley so you are rotated then within yes. and within your acting capacity you have a rotation you, you can you can you, you can be invited by the judge president of that specific court uh, so it might be in Cape Town, it might be in East London. It just depends on the JP of that specific court. And after I'd done a stint in um, in Kimberley, I was then invited to Gauteng, Pretoria, um, by my now JP, um, uh, Judge Mlumba. And he then had me over for a term, and he invited me to apply. And that's where I am today. But thanks for taking us through that evolution mm-hmm. and the the involvement and the, the strong mentorship component mm-hmm. on the route to becoming a judge. And in your role now, what, mm-hmm. what would you say have been some of the cases that have stayed with you the most or had the biggest impact? Oh, gee, we've, I've, I've done so, so many cases. But let me start at the beginning. You know, when I was an acting judge in KZN, I did a criminal case. I, I must just say that, you know, I, I didn't come from a criminal background in terms of my practice. It was more civil than anything else. And I did this criminal case and it really, really, ha- it, it stayed with me because it was so horrific. I had this very young female accused. She was 22. And this male accused, I think he was just around about 18. 
So she basically had an influence over him. What transpired is they indulged in alcohol and drugs on one specific night and she encouraged him to capture her father's friend who was drinking that evening with her father on the pretext that he had been abusing her. So she encouraged him to do so. They bound him up. They took him into the backyard, drove away with him. Backyard into the car, drove away with him. And at a point, they eventually tried to drown him. Weren't successful. They brought him back in the backyard again. It was at night. And he took a spade and he basically decapitated him with the spade. They buried him under the mango tree in the yard. A day goes by. They then uproot him, put him in black plastics, and they took him to a river and they threw him into the river. It was so traumatic because the family of the deceased could only identify him by way of a tattoo on his thigh. Because the femur bone is so long and strong, they could not basically break that with the the spade. And that's how his brother was able to identify him as being the deceased. So imagine going through the photographs that you have to look at as exhibits and dealing with the trauma of the evidence that is adduced by the doctors, the medical doctors, and the investigating officer painting the scenario of what could have happened. Because initially they, ple- they pleaded not guilty, but when it came to, to the date of the trial, they pleaded guilty, and then they gave an account of how it transpired. But the investigating officer was called just to elaborate on the, no- the, the, the little issues which they felt would jeopardize their case that would be of a strong indicator to say that the court should definitely find that they are guilty. Um, so, so that case stays with me and I had to then sentence a young woman of 22 because their trials were separated because he was, he um, was still younger. Yeah. He was younger, so his trial was separated from hers. So I had to sentence her at 22 to 25 years imprisonment because of the role that she played in that case. Um, Another case that comes to mind, well, the most recent one, is um, the one on everybody's lips is the state capture case. I was involved in the state capture case um, together with uh, Judge Brockovich and the JP, that's JP Mlumbo, um, where we dealt with the review of the decision of the public protector um, in calling for um, state capture to be investigated. I was involved in that case. And it it's basically has, as you are well aware, an ongoing effect on all South Africans' lives. So those two are the cases that that I can say have top of my head now that have basically stood out. They're both very poignant. And in in the first one that you spoke about, 
hearing you speak gives a completely different perspective mm -hmm. on what you have to go through on providing rational argument, mm -hmm. but also dealing with the emotional components and the implications that and, and the repercussions mm -hmm. that that have long term effects both on on the individual that has now gone into prison, mm -hmm. the families of the deceased, mm. because no one ever gets over over a death, yes, uh, especially yes. something as, as horrific as that. Mm. And then state capture, I mean, that, that has got massive, massive implications mm. on, on everybody and is, is going to go on for a, a good time to come. Yes. <laughs> I don't even want to add. <laughs> but looking at, at your position now and and thinking about where we've come from mm -hmm. would you say that our legal system has developed over time according to your expectations yes it has i mean from if if we look at uh, the situation that was prevalent in the apartheid era to the situation that we have today yes it has evolved um ju you know the the judicial system of course it's it's we know it's based on Roman Dutch law and customary law, but now we have to take into account that which basically embraces all of us, and that is customary law, traditional values, traditional ideas, traditional courts, um, environmental law, social law, civil, criminal. It has totally evolved from that uh, from that stringent civil type of Roman Dutch law and customary law. It has now evolved to to being a hybrid judicial system with different aspects being adopted from the constitution into the judicial system, which has basically enhanced it to be hybrid. Um, before, we didn't have equity law. Before, we didn't have employment law. It was, it, it was either a common law or Roman Dutch law. So that, in a sense, has evolved. To my expectations thus far, I think we've got a long way to go in terms of interpreting all the different facets of the law. I mean, one example is traditional law it is, and customary law. It is still not recognized or hasn't received the recognition that it should in our judicial system and in our society, you know? And that's why we have the different interpretation of customs and or judges interpreting customs differently. So we still that in itself is still evolving. You know, when there are different interpretations, it's clear that there's that evolution that's still going about until, of course, the apex court says, well, this is what the custom says and but that's the concord. How, how does that impact on decisioning because I could come into court as being a, a plaintiff, defendant, mm, mm. Or whatever the case may be mm. and my interpretation is one view. The opposing has a different interpretation and the judge yet again has a different interpretation. Well with us as judges we are guided by the statute we're guided by the Constitution, of course, first and foremost. And we are guided by case law, first and foremost, of our peers, right? 
that would be of my division. And then, of course, by the SCA. But the SCA, that's the Supreme Court of Appeal, their determination on that issue will override my peers because it's an apex court. And then, of course, likewise, the Constitutional Court interpretation on that issue will override the SCA and my peers. Hmm. So that is how a judge ought to look at an issue and deal with the two different views from either a, an applicant or a respondent. Because, of course, as an applicant, you would feel strongly on your view. And likewise, would a respondent in, in an application feel strongly on their view? And they would have case law to back it up. And likewise, would the applicant have case law to back it up? And I must be the arbiter and the objective arbiter to come to a conclusion as to, in my view, sitting there, listening to those issues, having had cognizance of the argument by both counsel, the law, statutes, decided cases, which hmm. route would I take? Normally, in, in, in issues of just legal issues, it's always on the nub. You either get it in, in the sense that you interpret it correctly or you don't get it and you've basically, you've, you've just lost the boat as they would say, in the sense that you didn't get the nub of what the issue was. So you went on a tangent. But in terms of constitutional issues now, if you are faced with a case with a constitutional issue, because the constitution is still evolving and the interpretation thereof is still evolving, your interpretation as a presiding officer or judge might be right, it might be wrong. It might, there might be other facets that you hadn't considered. So in those cases, of course, they will, they will move on uh, further to the SCA and then also to mm. the Concord, unless, of course, you just grant right direct to the Constitutional Court. Mm. So there's lots of components on context, mm. and I mean, this also provides the reasons of when appeals are, yes, are made. Yes, 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 yes. In my, in my long explanation, thanks for putting it like that. <laughs> you are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band, also available on DSTV channel 802. Today, we're talking to Judge Wendy Hughes from the Gauteng Division of the High Court, and we would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Judge Hughes, we were talking a little bit about the evolution of legislation, and one of the things that I noted previously was the, there was a, a, a call for the South African Women's Empowerment and Gender Equality Bill, which lapsed. And its principal aim was about being able to promote and achieve equality for women across the board. And in response to the lapse bill, the Minister of Women at the time, Susan Shabango, said, there is an Equality Act which covers all matters of equality and our responsibility now is to monitor the act to see if it is being effective. The bill was a duplication of existing legislation and we must now review these laws to see if, they're if they are delivering. We do not need more legislation, end quote. 
What do you think about legislation in terms of being able to close gender gaps, whether it is about equal pay for work of equal value or promotional aspects and position? Um, Well, you know, in respect of the Equality Act, I think I agree with Shibangu that, you know, we had legislation left, right and centre and then we centralised it and said in terms of dealing with issues, the Bill of Rights says everybody should be treated equal. Take it from that point and let's see how we work it into our systems. And as she says, let's see how the systems are working or are they delivering. And in this instance, especially so with promotions, discriminations and the like, pay differences, legislation is necessary to guide the different institutions, socially, economically, and of course on a humanitarian level, you know, that you cannot ill-treat a worker, humanitarian level. You cannot discriminate two applicants because of their skin color or the, or, or the fact that they are uh, of African descent and one is of European descent. Right. That's an, you cannot discriminate because I'm female and you male. And you, in terms of pay structure, you paid more than what I'm paid, but we do the same job. So that, in a sense, is what I see happening in terms of her saying, let's concentrate on the one act which encompasses all the other acts that we've had. Let's see if it is working in our society. So yes, of course, legislation is necessary, but we have the legislation on hand. It's all that we need to do is utilize it and interpret it correctly in line with the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. That's that's my view. It keeps coming back to those key points of where Mm. you're saying implementation Mm. and interpretation. Mm. Yes, because without implementing it... You can have as many laws as you like. Yes, you you, you can have as many laws. And if you have a wrong interpretation, that, in a sense, also will hinder the development of that legislation Mm. in the judicial Mm. sphere. And for it to to achieve the objectives that it was designed for. Now, turning towards more of a personal perspective, Mm. one question that I ask all my guests who've Mm. made tremendous contributions in their respective fields is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. Mm. So if you could share with us, what do you think some of those elements have been? For me, um, it would be my my parents. Um, Well, my late parents now. Um, Incidentally, I lost my parents this year. Oh, but, sorry to hear that. Um, yes, but I had, in you know, I had such a strict dad. He made sure that he pr- he tried as best as he could to protect me from all the woes that occurred in my community. I'm, I, I mean, I'm from a in brackets coloured community. Drugs, alcohol, teenage pregnancy is rife, but I made it out of that community to attain a degree in university and not because um, we had finances no, uh, but because he had the strong ethos that 
you will make something out of yourself. No matter what, you will you will do that. So he was he was very very strict. He was very straight a straight talker, and he was very work conscious. So in, in I think he basically assisted me on that vein. And then I had my mom, who was a nurse by profession. So she had the humanitarian. She had this big heart. She had this this open home. Um, in our community, if somebody was injured or somebody had taken an overdose or somebody had was ill, they would come, Mrs. Hughes, can you help me there? And my mother would always open the door, f- you know, for them. So um, her, her humanitarian warmth, I think, also balances um, my, my strong portfolio because I, I, I know that I, I come across as, as strong. But there is a mushy part in there. there. So those are the two people that have made um, a profound effect on me going forward. They instilled values. They instilled ethics. They instilled um, Ubuntu within me. um, And they instilled a clear set of ambitious work ethics for me which I try as best as I can to emulate and follow every day in this career that I'm in. So I think the, the, the strong influence was my parents. And almost when you're growing up and you've got those strong messages coming through, mm-hmm. I know brainwashing is, is probably the wrong term to mm-hmm. use, but you don't know any different. That's, that's what you know, and that's what you, you live out. Yes, but it's not like you don't test the boundaries. You do, you do test the boundaries, but then you always come back to begin. You know, as they say, you always come back to begin because if you want to measure your worth, you always come back to begin and say, you know, in my home, was this right? Your point of reference. Yes, yes. So uh, that being said, yeah, they, they, they are my... That my and were my, my, my influence and still are, I should say. Could you share with us a few of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? And I imagine there must be many. I think when I, when I attained my degree, you know, my first degree, uh, um, I've got a BPROC and an LLB. Uh, so when I attained my first degree, it was like, in that era, it was like my word. Uh, I had achieved what many of my peers from my community could not achieve. So going back into the community, you know, with a degree in those, in those days was like, oh my word, she's actually made it out of Wentworth. You know, there, there you are, somebody who we can say, a product of a community that was fested with drugs, alcohol, and all the rest, but yeah, you are this little flower amongst all these thorns makes it out of there. So yeah, that 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 was that would be one of of my pivotal moments, definitely. And what would you say has had the biggest impact on you to make you the person you are today? I think the law, you know, and the love for the law, um, the love for everything. Um, right 
in the sense that, you know, I was in practice. Uh, I'm just going to deviate. I was in practice. And I had a flourishing practice, a good practice. Um, but I had reached my ceiling in, in, in my mind. I had reached my ceiling. Yes, I wasn't uh, Ferksman's or Adams and Adams, you know. But in my field, I had reached my, my ceiling. And I was like, this is the time that I need to now not use the law to assist, but really use the law, interpret it so that it could be practiced by others in the correct, by virtue of the correct interpretation, I should say. And that, for me, was why I say I had the calling to come to the bench because I had reached that scene and I said, you know, it's, it's my time now to inverted commas, give back, give back what I had earned and what I had gained and also educate others, if I could, along the way, enhance my understanding of the law and also make a difference in terms of jurisprudence going forward. Those are really uh, Im important factors, and I, I love the, the effect that your parents have had, the, the, those rich values anchoring you, and that your passion for your profession mm. is, is consuming in such a positive way. And oh, thank you. To move on to different levels, because you know, some people could, could leave a profession because it wasn't giving them what they wanted, mm. but you've, you've chosen to take the profession further. Yes, no, I, I, I am really fulfilled in, in what I do. Every day is a challenge. Every day is a challenge. Uh, never rule that out, but a good challenge. And every day you make a difference, you know, in, in people's lives. And, and that's the profound effect that judgments have on lives. And um, also metering out the law, interpreting the law without any fear and without any favor. You know, that's the most important thing, which is part of a judge's oath, you know, that you get in there, you do the job, you do it well, and you do it with no outside influence but your objectivity. Independent and integrity. Yeah, oh, yes, integrity, that it is. And lastly, as we close out the conversation today, could you please share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to impart to young ladies listening to us? Oh, you know, at the end of, um, we do applications to admit attorneys and advocates as judges. And at the end of the admissions, we call the candidates forward and then we give a little talk to them going forward uh, in respect of the career that they've chosen and the work that they will encounter, the people that they will encounter, and the pitfalls that are there and the victories that are there. So in saying that, actually this is what you're asking of me. That's that's what I, I want to, I want to get at. In saying that, you know, the the legal profession is an honorable profession. It's an old profession, it's honorable. And today, we find that there are so many in the legal profession that have taken the short route. Instead of sticking along 
the long path that is riddled with every obstacle. And in taking the short route, you are sure and bound to fall off the cliff. And by that, I say there are many, many practitioners who come into the profession with good intentions, but do not have the staying power. They do not have the, the, the tenacity to persevere, to work through the small hurdles first, then get to the larger hurdles, but eventually make it to the end or cross over the finishing line. And that's the sad thing that we have in this profession is that we have many cases where we have to proceed with striking off attorneys, striking off advocates for, uh, for, um, for transgressions, which they know they are not ethically bound to commit. So taking that as a starting point, my message out there to the young women out there, young girls out there, those who are thinking on, of embarking you know, on, on a career in law is to have the staying power, persevere, focus, and know that it is not going to be an easy road. It is going to be riddled with potholes and all the rest. But you will make it to the finishing line if you persevere in what you want to get ultimately. And if you take that value and you marry it in your after you have qualified and you utilize that, then you would not fall off the cliff like many of the attorneys and advocates that we find before our courts who are being struck off and or suspended for transgressions. So, so that's, that's basically uh, my word of inspiration and warning <laughs> to those out there wishing to or thinking of embarking on, on, on a career in law. Law is an honourable profession. Thank you very much for both the, the cautionary aspect, mm. but, but the motivation and to keep it real. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you. <laughs> you have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, and we have been talking to Judge Wendy Hughes from the Gauteng Division of the High Court.